Tonight we have seven verses ahead of us, by God's grace, I should uh, preface, in uh, Romans chapter 13. So let's turn there, Romans chapter 13. There's not much Bible shuffling, so I suppose you're already there. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes." For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I suspect that this is not a very popular text (laughs) among a whole lot of people. In fact, I remember hearing growing up something like, Never discuss religion or politics in public. Well, if that's the case, I am in a lose-lose situation tonight because I'm dealing with both of them. In fact, in my Bible, the heading over chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 says, The Christian and Government. That's discussing both religion and politics in one fell swoop. But the Bible does that. The theme of this paragraph is... The Christian's responsibility in relationship to civil authority, to the government, to the state, police, taxation, etc. It's not easy. In fact, it's very difficult. Let's just go back a little bit over the outline of Romans, just so we get that in perspective. We've been doing that just about every study, but it helps. The first couple chapters deal with the wrath of God. Paul paints a very black picture so that when he brings out the white paint and discusses the grace of God, we understand why that is so precious, that a righteousness from God is revealed from heaven, not our own righteousness, nothing we could ever earn or procure on our own, but we trust and we receive it by faith. So the wrath of God, the grace of God, is then developed and followed by, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, with the plan of God. The plan of God for the Jew and the plan of God for the Gentile. Beginning in chapter 12, we have the fourth and final section of the book of Romans, the will of God, which should be something that occupies our thinking, our attention, and our desires most of the time. Is this the will of God? Is this relationship the will of God? Is this occupation the will of God? Is this pursuit that I'm on the will of God? And so Paul in chapter 12 talks about the will of God generally, verses 1 and 2, and then specifically. What is the relationship of the Christian to be to the body of Christ? The relationship of the Christian to using the gifts that he or she has in the body of Christ? What is the relationship of Christians to his or her enemies, those outside the body of Christ? And now, what is the relationship of the Christian in chapter 13 of Romans to be to civil authority or to governmental authorities? I want to begin, I guess I've already begun, but I want to continue by saying I believe in being involved as a citizen in local government, local authorities. In fact, one of the great themes of this paragraph, this section of Romans 13 and others we will discover, is that to be a good Christian means to be a good citizen. I believe in supporting righteous legislation. I believe in the personal support 
of candidates that uphold good legislation. I believe in getting involved in core issues that would promote such. At the same time, I am becoming less and less concerned about party politics to the extent that I don't really care if I'm seen as a Republican or a Democrat, but as a theocrat. I don't really find much hope for the future in which party you are involved in. I'm becoming more and more um, a supporter of that kind of thinking. Now, a lot of people have problems with authority in general. In fact, to quote the infamous phrase of our times, question authority is on the bumper stickers of many cars and on the minds of many people in America. If somebody in authority says it, question it. Retaliate against it. Any kind of authority is something that is questioned and spoken against. Thus, chapter 13 of Romans doesn't seem to fit with that. When Paul says, submit to the authorities that be around you. This poses a lot of problems. We'll uncover some tonight, hopefully, and touch on them. But many people have problems with authority. The voice of parents is no longer respected. Police officers are seen by some as a menace, their position and their presence. Uh, husbands are not leaders of their homes. God help the man who thinks that he is in modern society. Authority in general is something that is seen as changing and even passe. As Christians, we have dual citizenship. Now, we know we're citizens of heaven. We know that that's our home and that we belong to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king, and we surrender to him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But we are also citizens of this earth, this city, this state, and this country, temporarily albeit. But nonetheless, we have a dual citizenship and thus a dual responsibility. Let me tell you, and let's just keep this in the forefront of our minds as we proceed through this tonight. The main purpose, the main purpose of our being citizens of this city and citizens of this state and citizens of this country and citizens of this world, the primary purpose is to preach the gospel, to spread his kingdom in the midst of this kingdom. Let that be kept foremost in our minds as we proceed tonight. Now, there is a shift by many in the Church of Jesus Christ to not build a spiritual kingdom, but rather to build the body politic, that there will be no change until Christians get a hold of the bastions of power, that we have the perfect Christian candidate in office, etc. And so the the, the change in the church, and I say it is a change because it was never there in the first, second, third, many centuries of Christendom, is not to change people from the inside out, but from the outside in, which I think is a mistake. Many people advocate uh, anti-government activity. We can't trust the government, they say. They refuse to pay taxes. I know people like this. Um, they believe, they purport to be believers. But they say, I will not pay taxes. I believe it's against my conscience. I believe it's against the Bible. And so they will retaliate. Others push political involvement to the point where it's the socio-political thing that is the most important. One commentator said, so that the Bible gets wrapped in the flag and I see a lot of Christians in that camp. The Bible might as well be wrapped in their flag of their country because it's one and the same to them. Time Magazine had an interesting article. I want to share a portion of it, a couple paragraphs, about the patriot movement in the United States of America. The patriot movement that believes the U.S. government is repressive and untrustworthy. And the article featured the Michigan militia. Here's a portion of it. The men civilians all see threats everywhere. There are reports of foreign soldiers hiding in salt mines under Detroit, some of the men say. Others speak of secret markings on highway signs meant to guide conquering armies. 
The men's voices subside as General Norman Olson, a Baptist minister, gun shop owner, and militia leader, enters the tent. He tells the men that they are the shock troops of a movement that's sweeping America, that the end times are coming, and civil wars are two years away. That's not just in Time magazine. I have kept letters that have been sent to me warning me that I better be the one to stand in the pulpit and tell people that there's troops all around us and the takeover is soon and we better get up in arms and store guns and store supplies and, and be aware of this great, great conspiracy of the end times and that that is my position. And my position is always the same. My position is to preach the gospel, to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season. And to some, frankly, that is a sellout because they believe that part of the Christian ethic is to bring in the body politic. Others are indifferent, completely indifferent, doesn't matter, government stuff, political stuff, I don't care, state whatever. And the other extreme is, as we have mentioned, is to push for it. Now, we should be involved. We should be good citizens. We should be thankful for the great democracy that we have in this country, that we can vote, we can voice our issues, we can uh, join PTAs and join functions that enable us to voice our concerns, something early Christians didn't have. As wonderful as that is, it is not a necessity to the spread of the kingdom of God, nor is it to our spiritual growth. In fact, uh, a quick, easy history lesson would teach you that, that some of the most totalitarian countries and oppressive governments have seen the greatest Christian growth, the greatest spread of the gospel, that where it seems the governments are the most repressive, sometimes there is great, great spiritual fruit. History lesson would be that of China. After a hundred years of Western missionaries in China, it yielded about 800,000 converts to the Christian faith. 800,000, that's a substantial amount, but in a nation of over a billion people, 800,000 is a proverbial drop in the bucket. That's after a hundred years of Western missionaries. In the 1940s, the communists took over. There was a cultural revolution. Western missionaries were expelled. The church was persecuted intensely. It went underground. Here we were in the West, biting our Christian fingernails, wondering what's going to happen now that we're gone. And the church is underground and suffering and it's probably going to die out. And then the doors opened once again in the 80s and we were able to observe what happened. Not only did the church not die out, it flourished. From 800,000 missionaries or 800,000 converts after 100 years of Western missionaries and then we're all expelled, what did we find when we're all expelled and the church is forced underground? We found 50 and in some cases, they say up to 100 million converts to the Christian faith during all of that oppression. Incredible growth during a time of absolute persecution. The political climate in a country has little or nothing to do with what God's people can accomplish if they keep their priorities straight. Now, I know this is a long introduction, but bear with me because this is very, very controversial stuff. Let me tell you the proof of that from a biblical perspective. The proof of that is to look at the socio-political arena of the New Testament. What was the climate like when Jesus was born? What was the social, economic, political arena like? It was very, very dismal. It was politically corrupt. Caesar was in Rome, worshipped like he was God. Everybody had to be given a libellus certificate once a year after they put a pinch of incense at the bust of Caesar saying he was their God. So he was a full despot. Over in Israel, where Jesus was born, there was a guy named Herod the Great who had such autocratic control that he could make an outlandish commandment. Every child two years old and beneath shall be killed in the environs of Bethlehem. And it was carried out. Slavery was a complete epidemic. It was pandemic at the time of the Roman occupation. 
Out of 120 million people in the Roman Empire, it's estimated that 60 million of them, half of them, were slaves. In fact, other estimations are higher, that there were three slaves for every one free person in the Roman Empire. It was a time of great taxation. It was oppressive. We'll discover in a minute, in fact, at the end of this little paragraph, verses 6 and 7, where he says that we ought to pay taxes. You have to understand how that sounded to people back then. It might sound bad enough now to us in this country. We think we have it bad. They had it worse. They were absolutely crushed by taxation. The latter years of the Roman Empire was a complete welfare state. Taxation was so high and, and people were being paid for by government programs like crazy. Now, Jesus came on the scene. And you have to understand that when he did, he was not what people wanted. They wanted a political messiah. They didn't want somebody who said, my kingdom is not of this world. They didn't want that, but they got it. And he comes on the scene, and here the Jewish nation had expected and wanted and yearned for a political messiah, someone who will change the body politic, overthrow the Roman yoke, and make Israel head once again. Didn't happen. And they were disappointed. Even the disciples thought that he would do that. But when Jesus came, he did not call for political reform. He did not call for social reform. He did not go into a culture war with Rome or Herod or any Idumean ruler or Jewish despot. Not at all. He came to save people from their sins, and he commissioned the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There was a day when a couple groups came to Jesus, and they, they wanted to trap him. It says that in the New Testament. They came to entangle him in his words. There was a group of representatives from the Pharisees, the religious elite, and a group from the Herodians, two opposing groups, two opposing viewpoints. The Pharisees, being Jews, hated the Roman occupation, did not want to pay taxes, did not support any of their antics. Herodians, on the other hand, said, we should pay taxes, we should support the Roman government, and we should support the dynasty of the Herods. So they came to Jesus, and they buttered him up first. Hypocrites often do that. They say, teacher, we know that you speak the truth, and you don't regard the person of any man. So tell us, is it right, is it lawful? to pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus said, uh, called them hypocrites. Then he said, show me the tax money. Whose inscription is on it? So it's Caesar's. And he said a classic statement. Then render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and render to God the things that belong to God. And it says that both the Pharisees and the Herodians marveled at his answer. Hey, if it belongs to Caesar, then give what belongs to him. If something belongs to God, then give to God what belongs to God. That's what he said. But not everybody agreed. In fact, there were a lot of people, probably in the crowd that day, they were ticked off at what he said. It wasn't right. There was a whole movement afoot at the time of Jesus, not just Herodians, not just Pharisees, but they were called zealots. These were radical nationalistic Jews who not only refused to pay taxes but some of them were sworn assassins and thought they would kill at every opportunity their Roman oppressors. They wanted to bring in Judaism back to what it should be and they would kill people and refuse to pay taxes if that's what it meant. Here's the, here's the rub. When the zealots did what they did they did it based on their understanding of Scripture. They had a Bible text for it. Let me tell you what it was. Deuteronomy 17.15 says, You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And so because of that Scripture, here Rome comes in and here Caesar and Herod, these guys aren't sympathetic with God's cause, the building of the temple, the sacrifices, or anything Jewish. He's not a brother. He's a foreign oppressor. And from that scripture, they thought they couldn't even recognize a Gentile ruler, let alone submit to him. However, that was a text taken out of context. The rest of the text says, when you come into the land the Lord your God gives you, 
you shall set over you a king whom the Lord your God chooses, not somebody who's a foreigner. The point was, the king you set over should be somebody God appoints. You should not bring somebody as an outsider. That wasn't what was going on. They were under foreign occupation. They didn't choose anything. The Romans came in and imposed this. They were a vassal state. The Jews were a vassal state at the time. But the zealots were going to bring in political reform and kill people and refuse to pay taxes if that's what it meant. So what is the Christian position to be when it comes to civil government, a wicked society, and even an ungodly government? Verse 1, let every soul be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, who was this letter written to? Good. Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans. These are Christians who lived in Rome, principally the environs of Rome, Jew and Gentile. At the time the letter was written, Christians were suspected by the Roman government. Suspicion was afoot. Skepticism was rife. The Romans looked at Christians and they thought, I don't know about these guys. They meet secretly for their own little private meetings. They worship this Christ, this God, very, very singularly. They don't seem to be too involved in what we're doing. They didn't bow to our God, and so they were scrutinized. And so Paul says, submit to the government. It is important that you as Roman citizens in Rome don't show yourself to be subversive, but rather submissive to give Christ a good name. Now, having said that, there are some people who look at this section of Romans and believe that this was written only to the unique group of Romans who lived in Rome at the time. It was a unique warning for them. It is not something to be taken as a universal application. Well, Paul didn't just write this to the Romans. Peter wrote a very general epistle to early Christians, and Paul wrote another letter to Timothy that circulated to other Christians, and much the same stuff is written in it. I think we need to look at it. First Peter chapter 2, if you would turn there briefly. First Peter chapter 2, let's see what Peter says, if it's even close to what Paul says to the Romans. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 13, therefore, submit yourselves, 1 Peter 2, verse 13, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to kings as supreme or governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You've got to keep in mind that the king, in some of these instances, referred to wicked despots like Caesar Nero. Now turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is penned by Paul, who pens Romans. Verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and, get this, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. When is the last time we thanked God for those who are in authority in our country? Well, I don't agree with him. Do you think Paul agreed with Caesar Nero? Prayers, intercessions, yes. Giving of thanks. Why? Because if governmental authorities, if the state structure is part of the will of God, to punish evildoers, to commend those who do good, should be part of our thanksgiving. 
that we may lead, notice verse 2, a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's penned by Paul. Now think of that. Back in Acts chapter 16, when Paul is going through Philippi, the magistrates, the authorities, beat him, tear off his clothes, command him to be thrashed by the crowd, throw him into prison. Does Paul stage a demonstration? Does Paul sue the city? Now, you know what Paul does? Paul does what many Christians on one side of the aisle would say, oh, how infantile. It's a good beginning, but it's not enough. You know what he did? He sang praises to God, and he prayed. That's what he did. Vance Havner, who was once uh, the chaplain of the United States Senate, said, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within the lives ignited by the Spirit of God. His heart was burning, and he prayed, and he sang that night. Back to uh, Romans chapter 13. We're off to a good start. We at least mentioned the verse, first verse. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. Subject, hupatasso in the Greek language. It means uh, it's a military term to be in rank-and-file submission to a superior officer. Superior officer makes a command, you follow it through. There has to be order, there has to be structure in the military. Paul's point is well taken. There has to be order, there has to be structure in society. And part of that plan in the will of God, even with wicked rulers, is through state government. In non-military use, this is now from a language dictionary, it means, quote, a voluntary attitude of giving in of cooperating with, of assuming responsibility for, and carrying a burden. Now remember, he is giving this command not to people who are in a democracy at all, but under a dictator in Rome and throughout the Roman world. It's a very, very tight, oppressive system. He says, be subject to them. Now there's some obvious problems associated with verse 1 and the rest of this uh, this section. Here's the obvious problem. We live in a world filled with Caesar Nero's and Herod the Greats and Saddam Hussein's and Adolf Hitler's and Stalin's, etc. What do we do about that? Go back to the 1850s. You live in the South and uh, there's a discussion about slavery and uh, you're a citizen of the South and the South wants to secede from the rest and Keep slavery afoot. In fact, there's a war that's pending to divide the Union. What do you do about that as a Christian? You live in Europe. It's the 1930s, and a new leader with such promise comes on the scene named Adolf somebody. Oh, yeah, Adolf Hitler. And people, including the clergy, are saying, this guy has great, great promise. But he eventually advocates the extermination of six million Jews. Romans 13 you obey government. And so this begs the obvious question that brings up the problem with the passage we just read. Is there ever a time when our allegiance to government and state authority ceases? The obvious answer, the wholehearted answer is absolutely yes. When? Here it is. Here's the one answer. When our obedience to the government authority, civil authority, means by obeying them, disobeying God. If by obeying a command, if by obeying an edict, if that obedience means disobedience to God, that's when the line is crossed. Now there's some good examples of that. There's examples of people who said no to government authority within a biblical framework. First of all, there was Pharaoh who gave the command to the Hebrew midwives that all of the male children born were to be killed upon birth. They refused to do it. They knew that was against the law of their God. And in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. They refused to obey the edict of the king because the edict of the king meant disobedience to God. 
There's another time, book of Daniel, chapter 1. Nebuchadnezzar has taken over the world. He's taken over Israel as well. He brings captives into his court. Among those young captives are some Jewish males, Daniel and his three friends, given Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And an edict is given by Nebuchadnezzar. Give them a portion of the king's food and wine. Fatten them up. Give them good stuff. They have royal treatment. That was against kosher law. And Daniel, just a kid, probably 17 years of age, wouldn't do it. This is how the text goes. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he had drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. I want you to notice that little phrase, he requested. Even though he wouldn't break God's law, he did it with such finesse, I guess, such deference, respect. He requested. He wanted to make sure that he was not seen as a troublemaker in his disobedience. Another case is in Daniel chapter 3. We're all familiar with the image that Nebuchadnezzar built, put it on the plain of Dura and commanded everybody in the empire to bow down when the music kicked up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do it. We're not going to bow down to that stupid image. That's not God. We serve one true God. That was their thinking. But this is what they said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. That was the consequence, by the way. Whoever doesn't bow gets thrown into that big, fiery hole. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But listen to this. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Refuse to obey, but again, it seems to be in a very polite way, at least, that they are deferring to God. A few years later, Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene. Daniel is still there. He's an old guy by the time the Medes and the Persians have taken over, and Darius is in charge. Darius and Daniel seem to hit it off, but the other leaders, the satraps, that's some of the names for the officials, hated Daniel. And they said, you know, Daniel is so impeccable in his behavior, we know that we can't find any charge against him when it comes to how he relates to the government structure. If we're going to find anything against Daniel, it's got to be in how he worships his God. So they talked Darius into making a 30-day edict that says anybody who prays to any other god except the king is toast. That's a free translation of the text. Daniel hears about the edict. He knows what it means. And in Daniel chapter 6, when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with the windows opened toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. He didn't close the windows. He didn't go back behind the barn. He didn't just utter a silent prayer. He opened the windows. Well, he got thrown into a lion's den, didn't he? When he got out of the lion's den, you know the first thing he said? O king, live forever. I don't think I'd say that. I think, I think I'd say, may you die a slow, painful death. <laughs> oh, you just threw me into a lion's den. Hello. But he gets out after that and goes, oh, king, live forever. Wow. He defied the order, but there was still respect to the king. Now, there's a New Testament example. The disciples are placed before the Sanhedrin, and an edict is given. A law is passed. It is now the government regulation controlled by the Sanhedrin who controlled the Temple Mount during that time. That nobody could preach in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem or they'd break the law. Well, the disciples didn't obey it, did they? They kept right on preaching. And they said, 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And in the following chapter comes that classic sentence, we must obey God rather than men. So that all to say that when our obedience becomes disobedience to God, that's the line, that's the limit. Back in verse 1, second half, For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I admit, this is tough to swallow, but after all, we believe the Bible and we teach the Bible, and the Bible says that. We just read it. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. That doesn't mean that the governments are perfect. That doesn't mean that everything sinful man does, including in government, God approves. He does not. And he does recognize that power-hungry, sinful despots will sometimes reign. But nonetheless, no authority exists except from God. Remember when Jesus was before Pilate and he didn't answer? And Pilate said something to the effect of, You're not going to answer me? Don't you know that I have authority right now over you? Jesus said, You would have no authority at all unless it were given to you by God. Jesus said that. I recognize, Pilate, that you have authority that's been handed to you by God. He was abusing his authority. He was misusing as well as the Sanhedrin at the time. But nonetheless, it was authority from God. Now, we face another problem at this point. If authority comes from God, why is there such spread of so much evil through the misuse of power by government? We do know that God has permitted Satan to have vast power. I don't quite understand at all, but we do know that he has vast power. We do know that Satan incited our first parents, Adam and Eve, to sin. John chapter 5, no, 1 John chapter 5, remember when John said, And we know, brethren, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Remember in Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel is praying and an angel comes and tells him, I'm here, God sent me. He said, I was on my way, but for 21 days, here's a holy angel from God, a holy, powerful angel. For 21 days, I have been withstood by the prince of the power or the prince over Persia, over the authority of Persia. A holy angel was stopped by another unholy angel, presumably called the Prince of Persia. Not the King of Persia. The King of Persia was an earthly ruler. The Prince of Persia was a demonic being who withstood an angel from answering his prayer. Now, in looking at that chapter, it seems that there was a demonic control over that country. And perhaps, just perhaps, that means there's demonic control over other countries. I'll tell you, Looking at certain cities that I've been to in the world, it would certainly seem there's demonic control over certain places I've been and seen, and perhaps over countries as well. They're under the sway of demonic control. So human government, not perfect. Human government often under the sway of demonic activity. But the general principle is that God has established government to restrain evil and to reward good, as imperfect as it is. Verse 2, Therefore, You get stiffer. Hold on. Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Now, again, that's up to a point, isn't it? Whenever the obedience to the government becomes disobedience to God, that's the line we cross at that point. But here's the general, the ideal. Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. When I was a teenager, I was rebellious. Now, it's probably not news to anybody, especially if you have teenagers. That just sort of comes with the territory sometimes. But I was rebellious. I had a, I had a loud motorcycle, and I prided myself on that loud motorcycle. I found the loudest pipes that I could put on it. And my brother had a motorcycle, and he did the same thing. And right down the street, our neighbors were CHPs. Uh, California Highway Patrolmen. They had their little black and white cars parked out in front. They were two brothers, the Lattice brothers, Officer Lattice and Officer Lattice. <laughs> and, and we would make it a point to go down the street and 
have the gear just right so we could open it up as we go past their house. So whatever they were doing, they'd hear our presence. We'd make our presence known to them. Well, uh, we developed a reputation in that neighborhood, and they developed a reputation by stopping people and giving tickets to people like us in our neighborhood, in our city. And uh, I deserved it. I was a troublemaker. I was defying authority, and I was coming under judgment. Ticket after ticket. Now, I want to obey the law as a believer now. I want to. <laughs> of course, Paul did say those things that I know I should do, I don't always do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I find myself saying that a lot when I drive. I don't want to get traffic tickets, but I'll tell you something, quite honestly. I've gotten traffic tickets as a Christian, as a pastor. And I feel very ashamed whenever I do. In fact, the last 20, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I remember the time when I was going through Tucson, going to Tucson on my motorcycle from California just several years back, and uh, I was a pastor. I was seeing what the bike could do, open road, how it would cruise at a certain speed. Don't need to go into that. <laughs> but I did have to go into it with the officer that stopped me. And I remember him asking me as he was writing up the citation, so where do you live? I live in New Mexico, Albuquerque. What do you do? <laughs> that, well, you know, there's a lot of ways to answer that kind of a question. I said, uh, I'm a teacher. <laughs> he said, well, where do you work? You had to ask that, didn't you? Couldn't it just stop right there? What are you so nosy for, anyway? But he specifically asked me, where do you work? I know this was God. I said, Calvary Chapel. He said, uh, what? I didn't hear that. Calvary Chapel, okay? Well, what are you, you're a minister? Oh, and then I'll tell you what I felt about that big. I didn't want the ticket. I really do want to obey the law. But it did happen. It has happened. And as it says here, those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now the issue here is clear with Paul. A good Christian is a good citizen. A good Christian is a good citizen and God wants law and order. That's sort of the basic premise here. God wants law and order. They bring judgment on themselves. Uh, let me give you a very obvious uh, biblical example of that. In the Old Testament, Moses was the lawgiver for Israel, and his brother Aaron was the high priest. Remember that? Not everybody liked that, uh, because not everybody was being attended to. Remember Exodus 18, Moses is there doing cases all day long, counseling people from morning to night, and when he left and went back to his tent, there was still a line of people who never were attended to. Well, it seemed to be sort of a family business going on. The two brothers are in charge. And so a guy by the name of Abiram and Dathan and Korah and 250 others come up to him and they say, you know, uh, you take a lot upon yourself, Moses and Aaron. You guys are the big wigs. You guys control all the law. And they incited a falling out, a rebellion. And uh, Moses said, well, actually, you guys take too much on yourselves. And the next day, the ground opened up and swallowed them. They were dead. It was an instant judgment by God upon those dissenters. Now, that's Old Testament. You can thank God for that. But nonetheless, the issue is clear. They bring judgment on themselves who resist. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will receive praise from the same. You don't need to be afraid of police officers if 
And I'm preaching to myself here, okay? If you do what's right. If you don't do what's right, there is a fear. Now, because of the previous altercations that I've had in my youth with the law and in my not-so-youth with the law, when I do see a police officer, and I bet it's an experience you have too, a reaction is set up in my body, a physical reaction. It's called adrenaline. I find I white-knuckle the steering wheel and I get a little bit scared and the first thing I do when I see a police officer is I look in a certain direction, downward at the speedometer. <laughs> and I gauge my adrenaline flow by what I read. If I'm doing 75, if it says 75 as I pass the police officer, <laughs> I go, uh-oh. But if I'm doing 45, in a 45, even if I pass a police officer, it's a different response. It's, thank you, God. <laughs> then I'm not afraid if we do right. But it's a terror for those who are doing evil. So it says, and this is in general terms, rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Now, once again, Paul the Apostle himself was abused by people in Rulership positions and positions of authority. I mentioned Philippi, the magistrates, Thessalonica. The rulers drove him out. When he was in Corinth, the governor of the city, Gallio, was very passive and did not enact good judgment in his case. So he himself was abused in different places, and yet this general scripture, rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. That's the intention. Verse 4 is interesting. For he is God's minister. That's tough. He is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister. Twice he's called the minister of God, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. When is the last time you saw a police officer or a governor or a president as a minister from God? He is, or she is. The word Paul uses here is the same word the writer of Hebrews used when he spoke of ministering spirits, the angels who are sent to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. It's the very same word Paul the Apostle uses back in other writings when he talks about servants in the church, deacons. Diaconia is the word he used. Those who serve the church, they're servants of God, he says. Shame on our attitude when we look at authority and demean it, when we resist or we're angry at the police officer because he bothered our day or he's hassling us. Every week, a group of police officers meet here at the church, and I'm so grateful they do. And every time I see their police cars lined up here, I pray for them. And I have been known when I've been stopped by police officers and even given a ticket to say, Listen, before you go, I just want to say, I thank God for you. Now, that's sometimes holding a traffic ticket in my hands. Not that I get tickets all the time. I don't want you to get the wrong impression here. You can check my record if you'd like. But imagine saying that to an officer. I thank God for you. you go, what? Are you nuts? Well, they're God's ministers. You know, if we didn't have traffic laws or police officers enforcing them, you wouldn't feel safe to drive home tonight. There are certain, listen, travel outside of the United States and you'll understand des definitely what I mean. There are places you go and it's just a miracle that you survive the journey. Even in Israel and Tel Aviv, more traffic accidents than probably anywhere I've ever been. Um, they say in one year more people are killed in Tel Aviv traffic than all who were killed in the Six-Day War because it's unregulated unattended to traffic violations, uh, it's just not dealt with well. Now, I admit, there are the Barney Fifes out there, and if you remember the Andy Griffith Show in Mayberry, who just want to use their badge and push authority, but for the most part, it's not that way, and we should see them as ministers. Verse 4 continues, For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The sword. 
is an instrument of death. The fact that Paul used this in that context meant something very specific. He is speaking of the sword of capital punishment. Every governor sworn in was given a makaria, a short sword, which was not just a symbol of his authority. They'd give him a scepter for that. They gave him a sword, which indicated he has the right to take life in a capital offense. This phrase used in the context can only mean one thing, that in God's established order, even the governor and the government has the right to take life in a capital offense, and he doesn't bear it in vain. In the Old Testament, and most people can find this, unfortunately, to the Old Testament, but in the early days of humanity, God imposed the right for human government to enact capital punishment. It's a familiar text, Genesis chapter 9. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. In the New Testament, Jesus said to Peter, who took out the sword, remember, in the garden? He said, put away your sword, Peter, for whoever lives by the sword shall what? Die by the sword. That simply means the penalty, Peter, for killing your enemy will be the execution of your life by the state. That was the law. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Paul the Apostle stands before Festus, the governor, the Roman governor at Caesarea, and he's being accused by the Jews in Jerusalem. And he says of himself, For if I am an offender, or if I have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, then no one can deliver me to them. And so I appeal to Caesar. Paul acknowledged that capital punishment is sometimes just. That is, by the way, the idea of bearing the sword in this verse as the New Testament ideal. Enough said. I won't apply that. I am not in government. Therefore, you must be subject. Some of you are thinking it's a good thing. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, it's not just that we should obey them so that we don't get the ticket or that we don't have capital punishment happen to us or there's consequences, but as Christians, we have renewed minds. We already said at the beginning of chapter 12. And so there is that Con the conscience, if it's working properly, is that alarm system in the life of the believer. When we sin, the alarm goes off. We have a wicked conscience or a, a troubled conscience because of wickedness, because of sin. And so we should obey because it's the right thing and our conscience would bother us. Verse 6. Ooh, we have enough time to finish our section. For because of this... You also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. We know that's true. We know the IRS loves to attend continually to the idea of taking tax money from us. Just like nobody likes policemen behind them in traffic, nobody likes tax time. But plain and simple, we're to pay our taxes. The IRS, by the way, reports that there is a huge gap in what is paid in yearly by the American public versus what should be paid in, and that gap is $93 billion from what is actually paid in versus what should be paid in. As Christians, we're to pay taxes. They're God's ministers. Same word is used. Can't get away from it. Attending continually to this very thing. Not all taxes are just, and so some people will say, well, we don't need to pay taxes. We're Christians, and we belong to the kingdom of God, and after all, our government does abuse the tax system, and they support lots of ungodly things, and because they do, I won't pay taxes. That's bunk. Because in the New Testament, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and if you want to see an oppressive government in their taxation, look at the Roman government. And if you take that line of thinking and say you're exempt from paying taxes because the government misuses the money, then don't shop at stores if you know they're own, owned by cultists or if the owners of the stores are going to go out and buy something to support their drug habit or whatever. You could take that line of thinking completely out to another universe. So render, therefore, 
to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Can I quickly paint a picture of what taxation was like in the New Testament? First of all, there was a flat 10% income tax. Flat. Second, there was a poll tax. It was an added tax for living on earth under Roman rule, breathing Roman air. If you were a woman age 12 to 65 or a male age 14 to 65, you paid on top of your income tax the poll tax. Beyond that, there was the ground tax. A tenth of all of your grain or crops, a fifth of all of your wine, was given to the government. Beyond that, there was the fish tax. If you lived in Capernaum or Joppa, they would tax you per net and per fish. If you uh, trucked or brought goods from one place to the other on a cart, there was a wheel tax. They would count the wheels, if you had one or two or four, and they would tax you per wheel on the tax. There were taxes for roads and harbors, import taxes, and it was all done in Israel by something called tax farming. If you qualified, you would become the tax collector. Usually it went to the highest bidder. They bought it. And the government, the Roman government, had a certain amount stipulated that the government wanted from the people. Any more you could manage to get out of them, you could keep. And that was greatly abused, as you can see, by the rich who would figure out all sorts of ways not to pay the tax by giving the guys bribes. In fact, one Roman writer said, I have never once seen a monument to an honest tax collector. That was an understatement. It meant to underscore the fact that taxation was greatly abused. And in that system, Paul says, pay up. You're citizens of heaven, but you're citizens of earth. And if they say pay the taxes, pay them. In fact, he delineates taxes to whom taxes are due, verse 7. That's personal property and income tax is meant by the word. Customs to whom customs is due, that's import and export tax on goods. Fear to whom fear, that's a respectful attitude, recognition of position. And finally, honor to whom honor. You give allegiance because of that position. Now, I doubt after this study, anybody come March is going to say, or April is going to say, praise God, it's tax time. I doubt it. But I would hope that after tonight, we'd start praying for the use of that money. Pray, he says, for the kings, the governors, all who are in authority, that we can live a peaceful life and the gospel can be spread. I want to close with an anonymous letter from the second century. Okay, this is a great, great way to illustrate it. Second century to a man by the name of Diogenetus about the Christian church at the time. Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. This teaching of theirs has not been contrived by the invention and speculation of inquisitive men, nor are they propagating mere human teaching as some people do. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens, as citizens, they share all things with others. But like aliens, they suffer all things. Aliens in the term of foreigners, not little green men. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land is as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are at present in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They are passing their days on earth, but as citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws, and they go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but they are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, and they gain life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are short of everything, and yet have plenty of all things. 
They are dishonored, yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened, yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by Greeks, yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. To put it simply, the soul is to the body as Christians are to this world. The soul is spread through all parts of the body and Christians through all the cities of this world. The soul is in the body but is not of the body. Christians are in the world but they are not of this world. What a letter, what a testimony of the early church and their relationship to their society and to their government. 